Well, all right. Well, come on back, and uh, you've found yourself right in the middle of the book of Jeremiah. How about that? Oh, yeah, you, I can tell you're so excited about this, and no, I know you are. And uh, so, one of the things that I think you probably want to know is, and, and I think there's a few left back there. I, I, one day I was getting ready for a long time ago, I don't know, maybe three or four years ago, I was getting ready to teach the kings, and I put together this chicken scratch of all the kings, and it just helps me immensely to figure out who's, who's what and what's who and all that sort of thing. And right before the destruction of Jerusalem, there was a king called Zedekiah. He was the king, last king of Judah. And I think you're probably going to need to know that tonight as we turn to chapter 35. And the reason you are is because in chapter 34, it was about Zedekiah, the last king of the uh, southern kingdom of Judah. If I've lost you here, I'm so sorry. But the reason I think you need to know that is, is because in chapter 35, which we're going to cover tonight, it's about a different king. It's about a king called Jehoiakim. Jehoiakim was two kings prior to Zedekiah, so we know, this is the whole purpose of me confusing you, so we know that Jeremiah is not in chronological order. You get what I'm saying? And so there's a purpose to the way in which God put this together. And the purpose here is to show you sort of, not sort of, I think the purpose here is to show you um, what it is to be a follower of God and to be disobedient, Zedekiah, and that whole story last time about where and when he set the captives free, the slaves in Israel, and then he decided to change his mind. Can you imagine if you were one of the slaves, how awful you'd feel? And Zedekiah did that, and then we're coming to a really strange story, and if you read the strange story sort of just laser down in it, you're doing your one-year Bible, and you go perfectly in order like everybody should, I'm kidding. I'm not a perfectly in order person, but anyway, if you do, you're going to read this story about these people called the Rechabites, and you're going to go, okay, whatever. And yet what I think is happening here is, and one of the indicators of it is it's not in chronological order, is God is comparing and contrasting something. So let's figure out what that is. So here it is. I'm going to read a little bit of this, and then we'll pray, and we are at uh, Jehoiakim, not Zedekiah, so we're not quite to the end of um, the southern kingdom of Judah. Jehoiakim, he reigned from about 608 to 597 B.C., and Zedekiah was from 597 until 586, okay? There was one in between just for a few months. All right, here we go. Look, watch this. Chapter 35. The word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord in the days of Jehoiakim. That's why it's important to have a list to know where the kings are. 
Some of you are fading out. I can see it in your eyes, but I'm telling you it has a point, and I'm only to verse chapter, verse 1. <laughs> but there's this word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, saying, go to the house of the Rechabites and speak to them and bring them into the house of the Lord, into one of the chambers and give them wine to drink. Oh, whoa. Time out. The Lord is telling Jeremiah to bring these people into the house of the Lord and to bring wine into the house of the Lord. The Lord's actually saying that. And then he says, I took Jazaniah, the son of Jeremiah, the son of Habazaniah, however you say it, his brothers and all his sons, and the whole house of the Rechabites, and I brought them into the house of the Lord, into the chamber of the sons of Hanan, the son of Igdaliah, a man of God, which was by the chamber of the princes above the chamber of Messiah, the son of Shalom, the keeper of the door. Then I sat before uh, the sons of the house of the Rechabite, bowls full of wine and cups, and I said to them, drink wine. Nobody else finds this strange as I find this strange. This is a cocktail party in a sense. I mean, it's not really, but I mean, kind of. I mean, it's a party. It's a sort of a thing happening at the temple of God. But they said, well, in verse 6, we will drink no wine for Jonadab, the son of Rechab. See, it's so important to know the Old Testament. And we'll talk about this in a minute, but you and I and we should know together who Jonadab is, the son of Rechab, our father. Listen, he was a father to the Rechabites, commanded us, saying, You shall drink no wine, you nor your sons forever. You shall not build your son, or excuse me, you should not build a house, sow seed, plant a vineyard, nor have any of these, but all your days you shall dwell in tents that you may live many days in the land where you are sojourners. Thus, we have obeyed the voice of Jonadab, or Jonadab, sorry. <laughs> okay, whatever. The son of Rechab, our father, in all that he charged us to drink no wine all our days, we, our wives, our sons, or our daughters, nor to build ourselves houses to dwell in, nor do we have vineyard, field, or seed. But we have dwelled in tents and have obeyed and done according to all that Jonadab, our father, commanded us. But it came to pass... When Nebuchadnezzar, now you need to know the story of Nebuchadnezzar, you see, see, you're tracking? It's so important to know the history of the Old Testament, or the stories of the Old Testament, or the real things of the Old Testament, the biblical Old Testament, because then this is where the Lord works in that, and it just makes all these things come alive. And here he says, when Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up into the land that we said, come, let us go to Jerusalem for fear of the army of the Chaldeans and for fear of the army of the Syrians. So we dwell at Jerusalem. Then came the word of the Lord to Jeremiah saying, thus says the Lord of hosts that God of Israel, go and tell the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, will you not inst receive instruction to obey my words? Now, now he's talking to the people of Judah. You get it? And he says, Will you not receive instruction to obey my words, says the Lord? The words of Jonadab, the son of Rechab, which he commanded his sons not to drink wine, are performed. For to this day they drink none and obey their father's commandment. But although I have spoken to you, rising early and speaking, you didn't obey me. 
I've also sent you to all my servants, the prophets, rising up early and sending them, uh, saying, Turn now, everyone, from his evil way. Amend your doings, and do not go after other gods to serve them. Then you will dwell in the land which I have given you and your fathers, but you have not inclined your ear nor obeyed me. Surely the sons of Jonadab, the son of Rechab, have performed the commandment of their father... That's the key to the whole chapter right there. Which he commanded them, but his peop- this people has not obeyed me. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will bring on Judah and on all the inhabitants of Jerusalem all the doom that I have pronounced against them, because I have spoken to them, but they have not heard it. And I've called to them, but they haven't answered. And Jeremiah said to the house of the Rechabites, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, because you have obeyed the commandment of Jonadab your father and kept all his precepts and done according to all that he commanded you. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Jonadab, the son of Rechab, shall not lack a man to stand before me forever. Wow. Okay, so Lord, we need help. What's this all about? <laughs> help, Lord, to knit these things to our, into us, Lord, and then help us by your Spirit to live these things out. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, here you go. You got Jehoiakim, and Jehoiakim is sort of a really wimpy prince or king. He's a wimpy prince. He has made deals and tried to make deals. He sort of went up to Babylon and sort of, uh, you know, anticipated that Babylon was going to win. So he went up there and sort of tried to make a deal with Babylon. But then, covering all his bases, he went south. Who are the two major players at the time? It's Babylon and Egypt. So he went south and he sort of made... Uh, 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 some uh, talk or had some talks, some diplomacy with Egypt to try to get Egypt on his side in case Babylon didn't work. And he sort of just kind of hedged both ways. Who would win? Who would, who would uh, 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 you know, be the world power? And then uh, this Jehoiakim was sort of a puppet king of the Babylonians. And so there was sort of like backstabbing going on or what's the, when you have or double agents, you know, double agency sort of spies kind of things. That's what was happening with this guy, this Jehoiakim. He uh, came from this one Josiah who was the young king who sort of made some great reforms in Israel in, in religion, but never repentance there were some outward reforms with Josiah, but not repentance. But anyway, here, here we are at Jehoiakim. And uh, you know, I read to you, he started around 608 B.C., but you need to know these three dates. 605 B.C., 597 B.C., and 586 B.C. You need to know those three dates because Babylon came to the southern kingdom and sort of pounded on them a little bit and took out the cream of the crop people in uh, 605 B.C. And then in 597 B.C., they came down again and they, they delivered a blow and they took, you know, thousands and thousands of Jews and they took them to Babylon. They exiled them up there, but they didn't really throw the knockout punch. And that knockout punch came in 586 B.C. when they came into the city and toppled it and destroyed it. And there was murder and lots of bad stuff and the rest, you know, went up to Babylon. And that's sort of a major part of the Old Testament story is that these people in Judah followed the ways of the northern kingdom, Israel, and what was their problem? 
There were really two problems, but probably more than that. But the two main problems were this. They didn't follow the six-year law of planting, planting, planting every year, but then in the seventh year, trusting the Lord and not planting. Remember this? They didn't rest in the Lord for that seventh year. They didn't let the the ground lay fallow. No, they just planted right through, and they did it for all of these years, these 490 years. And so God said, you owe me 70 years, and he sent them to Babylon for that. He also says in his word that he sent them there because of idol worship. And so off they went to Babylon. But here we have them. Uh, We have them uh, in the time of Jehoiakim. So that would have been around the first sort of dip from Babylon into um, uh, into uh, Judah to get pick people off. Okay, that's the history. So watch this. There's this sort of compare and contrast between the people of God and these sort of mysterious people who are in the Bible. Who are these mysterious people? These Rechabites that God uh, has uh, uh, Jeremiah deal with. Who are Rechabites? Well, uh, they're mentioned here, and you can, uh, many people believe, uh, 2 Kings 24, 2 through 4, um, uh, because of the uh, uh, mention of the Chaldeans and their uh, uh, Aramean forces in chapter or verse 11. I'm getting my chapters and verses all mixed up. I'm sorry. If you look to verse 11, the, what we just read, many people believe this is sort of what was taking place in 2 Kings 24 when bands of these people came and other vassal states against Jehoiakim. Very well might have been. You hold on with me now. I totally got a point. But it's going to take me a minute. And Rechabites are these radical nomads. Write that in your notes. They're these nomads. Their roots, here's a good quiz for you, are from Jethro the Kenite, who is Moses' father-in-law. Okay? And that's from uh, some places there in the Old Testament. So they're descendants of Jethro. And Jethro, we know, came from an area that was out in the wilderness, And we know that from Judges and 1 Samuel. And the nomads were the ancestors uh, of the house of Rechab. You can look in 1 Chronicles 2.55. But in 2 Kings chapter 10, verses 15 through 28, we meet a guy who's named Jehonadab. And I want you to see something. 2 Kings chapter 10 If you compare the time frame between 2 Kings chapter 10, this is very important. This is important, germane to the story. And Jeremiah 35, there's a span of almost 250 years. That's important. Lodge that in there. Is everybody tracking with me? Is um, uh, When we meet Jehonadab, who is the father of these Rechabites, who were these nomadic peoples who took a vow not to live in the cities, who took a vow, not to have tents or materialistic thing, but just to be nomads, right? He, he had them take a vow, but that was 250 years prior to the time of chapter 35. Everybody with me? Okay, that's really important for the story. Here's why. Uh, what they do, they take this guy, uh, verse 3, the son of Jeremiah, the son of Habaziah, his brothers and all his, and the whole house of the Rechah. And they said to them, why don't you come over to the house of the Lord? Can you believe this? Why don't you come to the house of the Lord? 
And we're going to uh, get into one certain chamber there, and we're going to actually come and bring you bowls full of wine and cups, and you're going to drink some wine with us. That's what the Lord asked Jeremiah to do. In other words, you're invited to the house of the Lord. I mean, this would have been, you realize, right? This is the epicenter of all society and power and strength. I mean, this is, this is like, this would be on the front page of the times. I mean, this is it. Oh my goodness, Rechabites invited to house of the Lord into the certain chamber and they're bringing in vats of wine to feed or to, to serve to them. Now, this is a big deal. And so the Lord says this, but they get there now. Notice that the Rechabites come. They actually attend the party. But when they get there, they said, well, we can't drink wine. For Jonadab, the son of Rechab, how much earlier was he in the story? 250 years. Our father, our ancestor, the one who started this group, he asked us or commanded us saying, you're going to drink no wine. None, none of you, your sons, nobody, none of your ancestors are going to take wine. You shall not build a house, sow seed, plant a vineyard, nor have any of these, but all your days you shall dwell in tents. You see this. Watch this. Thus we have obeyed the voice of Jonadab, the son of Rechab, our father, and all that he charged us to drink. No wine all our days. Nothing, nothing. They did it perfectly. So how long had they been obeying? Tell me. Yeah, even I can figure that out. They'd been obeying for 250 years. Now, the point of this story is not to get you thinking, wine, no wine. We can debate that all we want. That's not the point of this story. The Bible clearly tells us not to be drunk with wine. Does the Bible say you can drink wine or not drink wine? It doesn't say that, but it says don't be under the influence of anything other than the Holy Spirit. Can you drink wine? Can you not drink wine? That's not the point of this story. The point of this story is that their father, Jonadab, asked them to take a vow. They didn't have to take a vow, but to take this vow, and then if you were going to do it, you were going to consecrate your life in this way, not in a different way, but in this way to the Lord. And they heard it, and they taught it to their families, and they kept that tradition, and they kept that vow alive, and for 250 years, they obeyed. That's what the point of the story is. It's not whether to drink wine or not drink wine. That's not this. It's that they obeyed what their father asked them to do. But it came to pass, you see, but there, some things started happening. Babylon started coming down and started to threaten them, and where did they live? Out in the desert areas. <laughs> and there's, you know, the rattling of the swords and the stampede of the, and the dust and everything. And they're like, whoa, shoot. Let's take it to Jerusalem. I know we're not supposed to do it, but let's take it in there because we need some safety here. That's apparently what they've said. Uh, and so they did. And here's the interesting part. You can just read it yourself. I mean, God is doing something here. He's bringing this story to you to show you that these nomadic sort of fringe group could obey their earthly descendant father and they were zealous for it. 
And yet, why do you think that the Lord says here, but I sent you rising early. I spoke to you and you didn't obey to me. I mean, I started early. I gave you amazing amounts of chances, the Lord says. I, I sent to you all my servants. I just kept sending prophet after prophet after prophet, rising up early, sending them, and turn from your evil way, amend your doings, and don't go after or amend your uh, uh, or don't go after other gods to serve them. Then you'll dwell in the land which I have given you and your fathers. But, but you've not you're inclined your ear. Listen, you didn't listen. Here are these people who've taken this vow and they listen to their earthly father. Me, the eternal father, not me, of course. I'm saying what the Lord says here. The eternal father says, I'm going to give you Every opportunity to turn and incline your ear to me and then do it. And I've done it over hundreds and hundreds of years. And you couldn't obey me. Surely, it says in 16, the sons of Jonadab, the son of Rechab, have performed the commandment of their father, which he commanded them. But this people has not obeyed me. Therefore, behold, I'll bring it on Judah, all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, all uh, uh, the doom that I've pronounced against them, because I've spoken to them, but they've not heard it. I've called to them, but they haven't answered. And then Jeremiah says to Rechabites, because you've obeyed the commandment of Jonadab and kept all his precepts, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, Jonadab, the son of Rechab, shall not lack a man to stand before me forever. Do you, do you get it? The people who obey... <laughs> because of God's grace. I believe we're, we're going to see it in the next chapter. I believe we're seeing God's grace when he talks about judgment. You're like, what? You see, because I think the heart of God in God's judgment, watch this, is for you to turn and incline your ear to him. And he's so patient, he just over and over again, and he just wants you to Incline your ear and listen and obey. You, you, you all know this, right? I don't hardly have to say it. But this is a chapter on obedience. It's comparing and contrasting the last chapter of a king who couldn't even make up his mind and something that was really important to these people who live out in the countryside or the desert who probably people looked down on because they were a little strange sort of like Christians. We're, we're, people think we're strange, right? And here they were, and they are doing this. And think about it. Their leader is not infallible. He's fallible. God is perfect and eternal, our Father. The Rechabites received their command just once. We, the people of God, received their commands from God over and over the Rechabites obeyed earthly things. The people of God disobeyed eternal things. They obeyed for over 250 years. Judah just continually disobeyed. And the point is, is the Rechabites would be rewarded and the people of God would be judged. That's the point of this. And so you know that this is a chapter about obedience. And the Bible tells us to obey is better than sacrifice. Remember that? To obey is better than sacrifice. And then, you know, for a long time when I surrendered my life to Christ, 
I often ask the question in my mind and my heart, how am I to show my love to God? I don't know. How, how do I show my love to God? And 1 John, I think, answers that. For this is the love of God that we obey his commandments. This is how we show love. And, you go, and so I start to say to myself, okay, you know what I say to myself? How about you? Is anybody else like me? Give me them commandments, man. I want to do them. Which is really interesting because in John 15, if you want to turn over there, notice New Testament. This is just coming to me, so I hope I can find it. <laughs> yeah, oh, I found it. Oh, whew. Look in verse 9 of chapter 15. See, you understand, the Old Testament lived by the law. The New Testament lives by grace, the new covenant. I actually think the new covenant, this is a weird way of saying it, we could never live the new covenant, but the, the or excuse me, the old covenant, but the new covenant, see, is actually a higher standard in some ways. Why? Because it's a standard of love. Before it was written on tablets. Now it's written on our hearts in a personal way. We, we want to obey our loving heavenly father, not because it's on a tablet, but because we love him because he first loved us and we're responding to it. And here, look at this in chapter 15, verse 9, as the father loved me, you get it? Jesus is talking and he's talking about love between him and the father. I also have loved you. <laughs> Think about that. He loves you like the father loves Jesus. Ah. And then he goes, if you keep my commandments, you'll abide in my love. And the reason you want to do the commandments is not because you have to, it's because you get to. It's a great dad. I love my dad. And he's asked me to do certain things, not to earn favor with him. I can't earn favor with him, but because walking in the will of God is just awesome and good and healthy. And here, look at this. He says, if you keep my commandments, you'll abide in my love. Not just you'll be in my love, notice. You'll abide there. Oh, you'll live there. You'll stay under it. It'll be bountiful. And just as I have kept my Father's commandments and uh, abide in his love. Now watch. Oftentimes we quote that and we quote the next section and we don't remember that they're connected. These things I have spoken to you that my joy remain in you and that your joy may be full. Walking in the ways of the Lord brings joy. It's joyful. This is my commandment. What is the commandment? You're like, give it to me, man. What do I do? How much money do I have to give? How many times do I have to go to the Bible studies? Do I need to be at the prayer meetings? Blah, 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 blah. This is my commandment, that you love one another. <laughs> As I have loved you. You know the story in Matthew. Rabbi, teacher, what must I do? What's the greatest commandment? What's the greatest commandment? Just tell me, because I want to do it. He asks. And Jesus says, well, everything, the law and the prophets hang on this. It's loving. It's love. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And then go and love people. Love your neighbor as yourselves. Those are the commandments of God for us. Look at this. I took this out of the Bible just real quick. What are our commandments? 
is to love one another. Create a loving environment where you are, not you, but as the Holy Spirit lives in you, there should be love. Watch this. I'll just read them to you real quick. It's fascinating. It all centers around one another. Here's some commandments in the Bible for you, New Testament. Love one another. Be devoted to one another. Honor one another. Honor one another above yourselves. Live in harmony with one another. Build up one another. Be like-minded towards one another. Accept one another. Admonish one another. Care for one another. Serve one another. Bear one another's burdens. Forgive one another. Be patient with others or one another. Speak the truth in love. Be kind, compassionate to one another. Speak to each other with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Submit to one another. Consider others better than yourselves. Look to the interests of others. Bear with one another. Teach with one, or one another, comfort one another, encourage one another, exhort one another, stir up each other, show hospitality to one another, employ the gifts God has given for the benefit of one another, clothe yourselves with humility towards one another, pray for one another, confess your faults to one another. Is it, am I making the point? How about this? Negative commands, don't lie to one another. Keep on, uh, stop passing judgment on one another. Uh, If you keep on biting and devouring each other, you're going to be destroyed by each other. Don't be conceited. Don't provoke and envy each other. And don't slander one another. And don't grumble against one another. These are in James. And we do all this because we are members of one another. The point I'm trying to make here is... (laughs) If you are to be an obedient person, love's going to be flowing out of your life for others. For others. You say, man, I don't know about that one because I watch the news and do all that sort of thing and I get mad and angry. Well, here's what the Bible says in Romans 5, that the Lord wants to pour out into your heart his love or will pour out uh, into your heart his love. We are new creations in Christ. And so the Lord calls us to this place of real loving of people. It's clear. Back here, God is making in Jeremiah 35 a point. It's not about wine, no wine. It's about obedience, the quality of obedience. And the Bible in the New Testament, I just read them Lots of them have a whole bunch of things that the Bible is asking us to do. And almost all of them that I read to you there are with somebody else. I mean, it's on the horizontal level. If you want to obey the Lord, then you're going to love people, including the ones that are irritating to you or even your enemies. You see it? You're called to something way different. Oh, sure, I'm going to get in trouble for saying this. You're welcome to come up and talk to me after. Let's talk it out. Sure, you can watch the news and get all fired up and turn it to the right channel or turn it to the left channel and just sit there and stew all night. And then the next morning when you meet somebody in the other political party, just zing them. Great. And there's certain things in politics that you and I, we hate. They're sinful things. But how are we ever going to witness and share 
Christ's love with 50% of the United States unless we love others. See, I think that's real obedience. And James tells us, well, that's all well and good, man. You want to sit in your little sanctuary and sing about it and, you know, smile with all the Christians and do all that sort of thing? Wonderful. But James says, if you just hear the word and don't do it, it's nothing. And so we need a real move of the Spirit. I mean, I'm not saying this is easy, folks. It's not easy. We're in, a, we're in a, a time of our lives where we're so wonderfully positioned to show the radical, supernatural love of God because you don't see that anywhere in the public discourse. Man, we're positioned wonderfully. Vaccines, no vaccines, masks, no masks. And right in the middle between all of them, there's just these Christians that love everybody and they love them really authentically. Well, that's what this is about. But now go over here to chapter 36. 35 is about obedience. 36 is about the Word of God. And I'm going to take a little detour here and probably won't get through it all, but whatever. Here, read this with me. Now, in chapter 36, something really strange happens. And now we go into the fourth year of Jehoiakim. See, we're probably into 605, 604 B.C. now because we're in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, that this word came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, take a scroll of a book and write on it all the words that I have spoken to you against Israel. Now, what's going on here is God's saying everything we've done so far, some people argue it only goes up to, you know, chapter, you know, 33 or whatever, and then from 34 to 39 or 40, it's sort of not included in there. That's a long story. And then 40 to the rest, that's all included, but we can talk about that later. The point is, the Lord called on Jeremiah now, isn't this interesting, to write down the Word of God. In other words, the very thing you're reading right now, God told Jeremiah to write it in a book. It's, so, it's such a blessing. You, you know why? <laughs> I have to learn. You know how I have to learn? If you're telling me information that I need to learn, guess what I have to do? I have to write it down. And I have to see it on the page. I have to. If you just tell it to me, it goes zoop, right through. Her, she, she can't write anything down. And she remembers everything. And, but she has to listen. No notes. And then she remembers it. Isn't it interesting both ways? Before it was told, so people who can learn, now it's written down and now we have it. Isn't that great? Because in the Bible, both reading the word and the Bible tells us to both hear, to also hear the word is important. So here he goes and he says, now I want you to write everything I've spoken to you against Israel, against Judah, and against all the nations from the day I spoke to you, from the days of Josiah, even to this day. It may be uh, that the house of Judah will hear all the adversities which I pr- purpose to bring upon them, that everyone may turn from his... That he... Hello. That I may forgive their iniquity and their sin. 
This is why I think God's judgment is grace. I want you to see the heart of the Lord. The heart of the Lord is not to just send judgment on somebody so it will terrorize them like, you know, some horror movie or something, although God is a consuming fire. God's heart is that whatever thing comes to a person in that way, look, that their heart would be turned towards him. That, and, and, and here is the whole purpose of life right here in Jeremiah. You ready? This is what God's after, that he would forgive people's sin. That he would pre, uh, forgive people's sin. Why? Why would God want that to happen? So that they could live with him forever. You see the grace in judgment? Oh, there it is right there in the Old Testament. We say, oh, the God of the Old Testament's not the same as the God in the New Testament. That's a bunch of baloney. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And here you see this incredible amount of grace. It doesn't, he, he wants their heart to be turned and to be their sins to be forgiven. That's the most important thing for the Lord for you and me. If you've never surrendered your life to Christ and you don't know whether the Lord's paid for your sin, well, you need to deal with that tonight. This is it. Number one thing. It's the whole reason for the Bible is that God would bring us back into his family, but he can only do it when you've been forgiven of your sins. And here it is. Then Jeremiah calls this guy named Baruch, verse 4, the son of Neriah. And Baruch wrote on a scroll of a book at the instruction of Jeremiah. So see, Jeremiah had a secretary. Don't get freaked out by that. So did Paul. He tells us in Romans. He dictated it. The Holy Spirit gave it to Paul. Holy Spirit gave it to Jeremiah. Jeremiah said, hey, Baruch, take this down. Paul said the same thing to his secretary. So he does. He, he gives him the words of the Lord, which he had spoken. And Jeremiah commanded Baruch, saying, I'm confined. I think the reason he's confined is because earlier, remember, he had given those temple sermons and people got mad. And I think he's been banned from the temple areas. Isn't that interesting? Well, anyway, I'm confined. I can't go into the house of the Lord. You go, therefore, and read from the scroll which you have written at my instruction, the words of the Lord in the hearing of the people in the Lord's house on the day of fasting. And you're also going to read them in the hearing of all Judah who come from the cities. So Baruch was more than a traveling or a secretary. He was sort of like a PR guy, too, and he could deliver speeches, right? Or he was, a, you know, he could project or whatever. So Anyway, Jeremiah calls on him, and he says in verse 7, it may be that they'll present their supplication before the Lord, and everyone will turn from his evil way. You see it again? There it is. There's more grace. There's the grace. For great is the anger and the fury that the Lord has pronounced against this people, and Baruch, the son of Neriah, did according to all that Jeremiah the prophet commanded him, reading from the book, the words of the Lord in the Lord's house. Now it came to pass in the fifth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, in the ninth month that they proclaimed a fast before the Lord to all the people and all the people who came from the cities of Judah to Jerusalem. Then Baruch read from the book the words of Jeremiah in the house of the Lord in the chamber of Gemariah, the son of Shaphan, the scribe, in the upper court at the entry of the new gate of the Lord's house in the hearing of all the people. Now here I got to take a detour. I can't stand it. It's so fascinating. And I want you to know it. There's this guy that we've encountered now and his sons. We just keep encountering them over and over here in the book of Jeremiah. His name's Saphan. He's a scribe. 
But apparently, this was a really godly man because in Jeremiah, we run into three sons of his, and every one of them are godly and courageous and bold, but loving and humble. And the first one we saw in Jeremiah 26, 24, his name was Ahakam, or Ahakim, something like that. I don't know how to pronounce it. A-H-I-K-A-M. He was with Jeremiah. He comforted and consoled Jeremiah. He was there for Jeremiah because Jeremiah was certainly lonely. Watch this. When Jeremiah was being led to be put to death, he didn't get put to death then, but this guy, this young son of Saphan, Ahakim, or Ahakam, he came alongside Jeremiah. Look, it would be a dangerous thing. Is everybody tracking with me? It would be very dangerous for the kid, the son. It would be dangerous, but yet it would be the amazingly godly thing to do, to come alongside somebody who is being oppressed, persecuted, and to build them up and to be with them and comfort them in the time when they're really stressed. That's what the first son did in the book of Jeremiah. The second son, Elisha, E-L-A-S-A-H, carried Jeremiah's letter to the exiles in Babylon. That's in Jeremiah 29.3, which means he must have been dependable, responsible, consistent, brave, strong, with a purpose of heart to live his life for the Lord. That's Elisah. And then we encounter right here, Gamariai, however you say it. I'm sorry, I can't pronounce them too well. Gamariah. He's the official who took Jeremiah's scroll to Jehoiakim. We're going to see that down in verse 12. Look at this. When Micaiah, the son of Gamariah, the son of Shaphan, heard all the words of the Lord from the book, he then went down to the king's house into the scribe's chambers. Now remember, it would be dangerous to go to the king's house because this king flip-flops and he doesn't want to hear the message of judgment. Everybody tracking with me? And yet, this guy, Gamariah, actually takes the scroll down. And he has a son named Micaiah. And Micaiah sits there and hears these things. And Micaiah shares God's word. You're going to read about it here, 11 through 14. Watch this. Elishima, the scribe, Deliah, the son of Shemaiah, Elnitha, the son of Akbar, Gamariah, the son of etc., etc., verse 12. Micaiah declared to them all the words that he had heard when Baruch heard the book. Uh, Therefore, all the princes sent Jehida, I'm not saying this very right, the son of Shalamai, to Baruch, saying, Take in your hand the scroll from which you have read in the hearing of the people, and come. So Baruch, the son of Neriah, took the scroll and came to them, and they said to them, Sit down. And now it happened when they heard all the words that they looked in fear from one another and said to Baruch, We will surely tell the king these words. And they asked Baruch, saying, Tell us now, how did you write all these words? Uh, uh, at his instruction. So Baruch answered, he proclaimed words to me, and I wrote them with ink in the book. And then the princess said to Baruch, go and hide you and Jeremiah, and let no one know where you are. Sorry, Gamariah is in verse 10. I said verse 12. He's in verse 10. We hear about him 
as one who is uh, at the entry of the new gate of the Lord's house and the hearing of all the people. In other words, look, here's what I'm trying to tell you. You got three sons, you encounter them all in the book of Jeremiah, and now this Micaiah guy is the grandson of Shaphan, who's the son of Gamariah. I know there are a whole bunch of words, but the point I'm trying to make is this was an amazingly godly family. There was something about the patriarch, Saphan, where he brought about, through the Lord, of course, godly kids, watch, who would stand in the midst of enemy territory or enemy, (laughs) you know, the enemies are at the gate and they would stand. And in the middle of that, instead of thinking of themselves, they would comfort people who were hurting in the middle of that, they would said, hey, whatever you need from me, do you need me to run up to Babylon and take this letter and carry it away for you? Okay, I'll do that. Or do you want me to stand in the courtyard and just speak these words to people? Okay, we'll do that. Oh, wait a minute, grandson. You want me to actually go to the princes of Judah and tell them about the impending judgment that's coming? In fact, you can hear and see on the horizon the enemy. And that enemy is going to take us over and we're going to be taken up into uh, Babylon. Do you see how bold and responsible and caring and loving and Christ-like these kids are? It fascinates me. You see, because God wants us to have godly families. Because for some reason, he's chosen to pick people like you and I to stand up in a world that's not very godlike and stand for righteousness and love and forgiveness and speak to enemies and love them and, and to, to be bold in it and yet humble, to be flexible and yet reliable and all, everything in between and just to be sort of a, a, a shining beacon of his grace in a world that's really evil. You see it? And he chose to do it through families. And you know the scriptures like I. I mean, come on, Proverbs 22, you, you know even just here in this little place. I mean, you just see young people coming and want to know the word, man, like the deer pants for the water. And that's a testament to your families and to bringing them. And then, you know, you just read, you know, train up a child in the way it should go. You say, well, wait a minute, my child's not going that way. Or you read... Deuteronomy, and you say, well, what am I to do as a parent? Well, whatever you do, whether you're putting them to bed or you're getting them up out of bed or everything in between, just keep telling them about me and not just telling them, live it out yourself so that they see it because, as you know, one famous uh, Christian said, much of Christianity is caught more than it's taught. And you just live your life, uh, you know, ablaze for the Lord. Your 
relationship with the Lord is what's going to come out in your kids. And you say, well, wait a minute, maybe my kids aren't that way, but, or maybe I don't even have kids, but see, you sort of do because you come here and we're all sort of rubbing on each other, iron sharpens iron. And so we're sort of the legacy too, not just your biological kids, but kids here, the people you're discipling or those who've discipled you. And so that's what we're to be about. And again, you say, well, wait a minute, my kid's not following the Lord, so just shoots your Bible stuff down the drain here. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what, here it all comes back to this. I've read this little book. If, you feel, if you're in that position and you're saying, well, man, I, my, my kids aren't following the Lord and they're not standing you, well, then go and get this book. And, and, and this author, O. Hallisby, on prayer defines prayer this way, is nothing more involved than to let Jesus into our needs. To pray is to give Jesus permission to employ his powers in the alleviation of our distress. To pray is to let Jesus glorify his name in the midst of our needs. You say, well, I've got prodigals in my life. (laughs) Well, you're in the perfect position to pray. And he goes on later in the last chapter of the book, he uh, Uh, says this, and I have to read it to you, as I think about how we train up our families, whether they're biological families or disciple families. And and he he says this, I I just got to read it to you. It's just perfect. What are we to be as people who are leading people to be godlike in the midst of all these different things? By the way, did you notice that each one of the sons had a different beachhead? God had positioned them somewhere different. And the grandsons, there's actually another grandson mentioned here. But, but whatever. So what are we to be doing? We're to talking about the Lord, living out the Lord, uh, uh, training our kids. But, but listen to this. I, this is just touching. The writer of this book says, Our family has been a believing and praying family for three generations. The elders have prayed faithfully for their descendants. During my whole life, Hallisby says, I have walked in the prayers of my parents and forebears and then the answers to these prayers. Did you catch that? A quiet rain drips steadily down upon me. I reap in truth what others have sown. My friend, if you're not able to leave your children a legacy in the form of money or goods, don't worry about that. And don't wear yourself to death, either physically or spiritually, in order to accumulate a great deal of property for your children. But see to it, night and day, that you pray for them. Then you will leave them a great legacy of answers to prayer, which will follow them all the days of their life. Then you may calmly and with a good conscience depart from them. Given or even though you may not leave them a great deal of material wealth, he who thus provides for his whole future life by a childlike, persevering prayer will experience answers to prayer not only in life but also in death. And I just would say, oh my goodness, is this the crux of our life or is it? White picket fences and how much bigger we can build our houses and the car that we need. What is it? Or are we here? Are we 
praying that somehow, some way, the people that we influence or impact would be positioned in a godly way by God himself into their own little beachheads until the Lord returns so that more people could be in heaven with us. And it could be through our families. Oh, what a mission. Somebody needs to write a book on Safan and how he raised his family. Oh, but wait a minute. He did. So this Micaiah here, and we'll finish off at verse 19. And you'll have to come back for the rest of the story. But Micaiah here, the son of Gomorrah, he, he goes, I want you to see this, and he takes all the words from the book. He goes down to the king's house into the scribe's chamber, and he finds the elites of the city. And they're all sitting around, all the princes. And Micaiah declared to them in verse 13 all the words that he heard when Baruch read the book. Did you catch that? This kid... This grandson of Saphan, when he heard the prophecies of Jeremiah, he remembered them, which means you have a responsibility when you go to church. You get it? You say, well, the pastor needs to be good, and it needs to be clever, and I need to know it, and it better be good. If that guy doesn't teach this week, I ain't going. I mean, I've heard people say stuff like that. But you have a responsibility, just like Micaiah. And the responsibility is to pay attention and to pray as you come to church, Lord, what are you going to speak to me today so that I could be a blessing to others? Well, he goes, and he, all the princes sent this kid named, or this person, Jehudai, and these others, uh, and they send him off to Baruch saying, hey, take in your hand the scroll from which you have read and the hearing of the people and come. So Baruch this executive secretary, he comes to them and says to them, sit down, read it so that he does. He reads it, and they looked in fear from one to another, and they were like, oh, shoot, judgment upon Judah. We're surely tell the king. So Baruch answers, and he proclaims with his mouth all these words, and he wrote to them, verse 18, with ink in the book. And then the princess said to Baruch, go and hide, you and Jeremiah, and let no one know where you are. Remember, uh, another prophet had been killed in Jeremiah, the, the book of Jeremiah. So uh, these princes are sort of on the lookout. Well, I lied. I'm just going to go through it real quick. Watch this. And they go to the king into the court, but they stored the scroll in the chamber of Elishamah, the scribe, so the, uh, and uh, told all the words in the hearing of the king. So the king sends this Jehodi to bring the scroll, and he takes it from uh, Elishamah, the scribe's chamber, and Jehoda read it in the hearing of the king, and the hearing of all the princes who stood beside the king. Now the king was sitting in the winter house in the ninth month with a fire burning in the hearth before him. And it happened when Jehodi had read three or four columns of the scroll that the king, with a knife, sort of just sort of cuts it in a real cavalier, arrogant, dripping way and just casts it into the fire. Now think about it. This is God's word that he's dictated to Jeremiah, who's put it on, uh, then dictated it to <laughs> Baruch. So it takes some time, and it was consumed on the hearth, and yet they weren't afraid. Look, none of the people inside there were afraid, nor did they tear their garments, the king nor any of his servants. You could go back to when Josiah found the word of God and see the different reaction. In 2 Kings 22, I mean, they were, oh, God's word. 
and they were tearing their clothes and what, what, why have we not been following this? And there was a great reverence when Josiah found the word of God. And, but they, they just, you know, nothing. Who, they heard all the words, but nothing. Nevertheless, verse 25, E, D, and G implored the king not to burn the scroll, but he wouldn't listen to them. And the king commanded Jeremed, the king's son, Sariah, the son of Azrael, the son of Abdel, to seize Baruch the scribe and Jeremiah the prophet, but the Lord hid them. Now, after, this is fascinating. After that, king had burned the scroll with the words which Baruch had written at the instruction of Jeremiah, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah and said, hey, take out another scroll and write it down again. <laughs> That's what he tells him to do. Write it on the former words that were, uh, all the former words that were in the first scroll, which Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, has burned. And you're going to say to that king, thus says the Lord, you've burned this scroll. Why have you written it that the king of Babylon will certainly come and destroy this land and cause man and beast to cease from here? Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning Jehoiakim, king of Judah, he shall have no one to sit on the throne of David and his dead body shall be cast out of the heat of the day and the frost of the night. I will punish him, his family and his servants, and I will bring them for their iniquity, and I'll bring on them, on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, on the men of Judah, all the doom that I've pronounced against them. Watch. This might be the most awful thing of the whole chapter. But they didn't listen. They didn't heed it. They didn't listen at all. When you look at what Josiah's and his administration did versus what... Uh, this king, Jehoiakim, and his administration did. Remember, you, you can either look at this, watch, receive the word of God, or you could reject the word of God. You could hear the word of God, or you could ignore the word of God. Uh, you could respect it or fear the word of God, or you could just simply forget it, one ear and out the other. And here it's this contrast. They didn't listen. Then Jeremiah, verse 32, took another scroll, gave it to Barak the scribe, the son of Neriah, who wrote on it the instruction of Jeremiah. All the words of the book. All the words. Which Jehoiakim, king of Judah, had burned in the fire. And besides, there were added to them many similar words. Now, you know this, right? First Peter 1. Just go over there real quick. 1 Peter 1. And when you get there, and it's very famous to you, and you, I'm sure, know this. In 1 Peter 1, verse 24 and 25, let's go there. It says this, Because all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man is the flower of the grass. The grass withers, and its flower falls away, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Now, this is the word by which the gospel was preached to you. The word of the Lord endures forever. People have tried to destroy the word of God since the word of God has been being (laughs) formulated. But Jehoiakim failed to realize one amazing point, and that's this, that the power of God's word flows from God himself. You ever thought about that? The the power of God's word flows from God himself. Nobody. It can't be. It's indestructible. 
It can't and won't be destroyed. Now, that's fascinating because what does that say to you? If you're going to build your life in the right way, build it on the Word of God. It's the only thing that we can count on. The Word of the Lord endures forever, and the power of God's Word flows from God Himself so that when we are reading God's Word, hearing God's Word, we're hearing from the uh, the very creator of the universe, and God takes you, the child of God, he takes, in you, as you take in the word of God and by the spirit of God, does that in your life to where power and strength and forgiveness and humility and love just starts to pour out. And I would just say this is a great study in what we should do as we take in God's word. We should, number one, watch this. I don't know if you caught this in reading. I skipped over it pretty fast. We, we should read it all. I mean, guys, you got to get into Leviticus. I like Leviticus, but right? Leviticus, numbers, don't shy away. Proverbs, Psalms, Jeremiah, 1 Thessalonians, all of it, just all of it. We have to take in it all. You need the whole word of God. In fact, in verse 11, it says, Micaiah, the son of Gemariah, the son of Shaphan, heard all the words from the book, not just some of them. He heard all the words of the book. And what do we do when we are healthy in the word? We go and share it with others. Do you see it? He went right into the temple precincts and talked to the princes. And the reason I think he did it is because you can see it in verse 16. He actually feared God's word. There's a wholesale lack of respect and reverence and fear for God's word now. But here it says it happened when they had heard all the words that they looked in fear from one to another and said to Baruch. Now these are different people than the Micaiah. But it shows you that the princes feared God's word. See, that's what happens when we read God's word. It's active and alive and it's powerful. It's straight from the throne of heaven. We should fear God's word. We should read God's word. We should hear God's word, all of God's word, and then go share God's word. And that's our mission. You know, really, we should be reading God's word here at the church. We should be reading God's word at home. I laugh when people say we don't have time to do it. It's just funny to me because I know your Netflix account is like off the charts. But we don't have time. And the reason I'm saying that is not to make you feel bad or guilt you into doing it. The healthiest and greatest place to be is tucked in there right under the Lord. And he uses his word in that way. Let's pray. Well, Lord, we do. We come here tonight and we say, Lord, thank you. We, we don't want to cut away at any of your word. We want all of it for ourselves. Even the tough stuff that hurts, sort of like surgery spiritually. Lord, have your way in our hearts here tonight. Do your surgery. And then, Lord, 
Fill us up so that we could go up, go out, excuse me, and love a hurting and dying world that so desperately needs to see authentic, real love and needs to hear the gospel, the good news. Help us in this way to have several divine appointments. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.